Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. This is MPB News. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Monday, February 24th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, developers meet to discuss the One Lake Project. Then, after Bite Size Tech, a new report assesses the state of Mississippi's public universities. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. The latest iteration of a plan to widen the Pearl River and provide flood control for areas in and around the capital city is getting more attention after the recent record flooding. The seven-mile-long One Lake project, as proposed, would provide flood control for parts of Jackson, Flowood, Pearl, and Richland all along the Pearl River. Robert Graham is the District 1 supervisor for Hines County. He tells MPB's Kobe Vance the plan will save many homes from flood damage. It's a seven-mile-long uh, stretch of the river that we're attempting to widen to make sure uh, that we can mitigate and minimize flooding in North Jackson and throughout the city of Jackson. Uh, there's a lot of different um, variations of the project. It was a two-lake project, then it was a one-lake project, and uh, there are different uh, amounts of money that we think that we may have to spend in order to, to develop this particular project, uh, anywhere from 350 to $400 million dollars. Uh, but we feel like that it's worth it to minimize the flooding and to mitigate the flooding in North Jackson. What has happened over the last 40 years is zero. There's two things we can do. We can do something or we can do nothing. This is doing something. And uh, whenever it comes to this project, how long do you think it would take to start to implement something like this? It could be, uh, I think, that um, the citizens will see some type of significant difference within about a couple of years. Um, barring any unforeseen other natural event that we just had, uh, that just happened. Uh, so 
it depends upon how much, um, how quickly we can raise the money that's needed, uh, how much uh, the federal government will do. Um, but we, this plan has been here all the time. We're ready to go. Uh, we're looking for help from Washington uh, as well as from the state of Mississippi. And what are some of the hurdles do you expect to uh, face while pursuing this? Environmental. Uh, the most, uh, the biggest hurdle that we have is environmental. Uh, downstream, there's a myth that uh, people downstream are going to be flooded at the expense of Jackson and Hans County. That's just simply not true. Uh, we have studies through the Corps of Engineers. We have studies uh, that have been finalized and turned into the Corps of Engineers. That that is just not true. And then lastly, I know somebody mentioned that this might help with uh, getting, having people get affordable flood insurance in their homes. Um, could you talk a little bit about that and if you think that would work? I think it would work because if you mitigate the amount of water going downstream, you mitigate the flooding, then it's definitely going to help. Because this, as you heard them in there a few minutes ago, we're talking about going from 162 homes flooded or water in those particular homes to eight that makes a significant amount of difference. But if you look at the human aspect, having your house flooded every two or three years, every four or five years, every 10 or 12 years is not the way you want to live. And it's not the way that we want people to live in and around Jackson because to us and to me it's an economic driver. If people are moving outside of the city of Jackson based upon the fact that they don't want to be in an area where their homes are going to flood. Robert Graham is the Hines County District 1 supervisor. Mendrop Engineering was hired by the Rankin-Hines Pearl River Flood and Drainage Control District to study the environmental impact of the One Lake Project. Keith Turner is an attorney representing the Flood Control District. He tells our Kobe Vance the plan has been in the works for years, but a better flood control mechanism has been needed since 1979. The current format started about seven years ago. Uh, and, of course, people, various entities in Mississippi have been looking for flood control solutions uh, really since 79 uh, when the big flood came. But uh, this group, this entity, has been about seven years. And so um, when it comes to this project, how long do you think it's going to be before Mississippi can start to see some kind of uh, change uh, through this kind of project? Well, there's still things in front of us. We have to get approval from the Assistant Secretary of the Army. Uh, and then we, of course, have to arrange for financing. It's a, not a complex project. We anticipate the engineering will take about a year. Construction could be three years. But because of the financing components and things, we think it will be phased. So we're looking at probably, you know, if everything fell into place, you know, you're looking at somewhere between, you know, three to four to ten years. And what's the scope of impact this, uh, this project might, might change? Well, I mean, the purpose of the project is flood control, to get people out of flooding from, from these floods. You know, people, uh, particularly the younger folks in this area, don't realize, you know, because it's been 83 since we had a real major flood. So this, this flood of the February 220 has really woken up folks to realize that we've been at risk the whole time. We've known that. We've tried to get that message out. But most folks don't realize and think about flood control until the water's lapping at their front door. Uh, this is, the timing is such, we just submitted the report to the Assistant Secretary of the Army about two weeks ago. So the timing is, is kind of fortuitous, uh, but unfortunately these folks had to go through suffering. But it does bring attention to the situation. And so what are some of the hurdles that this project faces um, going forward? Right now the first, of course, is getting approval from the Assistant Secretary of the Army. That's step one. Uh, the next step is financing. And uh, what's, how's, how's the state going to find that uh, financing? Well, we have several uh, models we're looking at, uh, but we anticipate it be three tiers. We're looking for federal funding some state funding, and the flood control district has the ability for bonding as well, so we can bond part of the funds. And now would this be considered a state project or a regional, like something regional? 
Well, I think the entire state benefits, quite honestly. I mean, we are, we're a, a regional authority because we only work in Hines and, and uh, excuse me, Rankin counties, but this benefits the entire state. If people don't realize it's 79, I-55 was closed. I mean, closing I-55 impacts the entire state. This is the capital city. So when, when this community shut down, and if it, another flood of 79 level would be $2 billion worth of damages, that affects the entire state. So the impact is to the state, but the direct benefits as far as the individuals, of course, obviously, is the metropolitan Jackson area. I think folks uh, need to learn about this project for themselves. There's a lot of misinformation. There's a lot of people that are trying to spread questions and concerns that aren't validated or, or backed in science and engineering. So I suggest folks learn and evaluate it for themselves. As far as those concerns, I've heard uh, some concerns are the people downstream um, that this would back up in those areas. Could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. We have we have uh, purposefully delved deeply into downstream issues. Uh, our, our project looked at uh, multiple modeling uh, as far as water quantity and water quality. We looked at making sure we weren't flooding folks downstream. We most recently, just as in 2019, conducted additional modeling, working with a firm that actually did a model for the DEQ, the state agency, and again to confirm that water quantity and water quality is not going to be impacted downstream. Keith Turner is an attorney for the Rankin-Hines Pearl River Flood and Drainage Control District. The project isn't without opposition. In the many years of its planning, experts have criticized One Lake, citing issues with bridges, endangering wildlife, and river commerce. Andrew Whitehurst is with the group Healthy Gulf. He says the plan could help flooding in the rainy months, but in the dry season, he's concerned about how it could affect water levels in communities downstream. The last version of the study for this project in its lake alternative, which is alternative C, there have been studies of up to one and a half miles downstream for effects. And the people downstream farther than that, whether that's the town of Monticello with a big paper mill or the town of Bogalusa, with another big paper mill, or St. Tammany Parish at the end of the system and Hancock County at the end of the system that have estuaries and marshes, those stakeholders don't know what the effects will be down there. The modeling that has been done so far doesn't go past Bogalusa, Louisiana. So, so this could have a larger impact of not only wildlife, but also some of the economic growth of the South. Well, it's not just the economic growth. It's the current industrial users of the river, which is 102 discharge permits in both states. And those are regulated by the state departments of environmental quality in both Louisiana and Mississippi. So towns are concerned that they'll have enough fresh water at the right time of the year to mix with their treated sewage effluent. And the folks at the very bottom of the system concerned with seafood are concerned about the nursery area and the water quality for oysters where they need predictable, seasonal, and moderate salinities. And now, is there any concern about um, 
now that if they widen the Pearl River, it, this is obviously this would be beneficial for flood times. But what would the impact be whenever it's not uh, when the water levels are lower? Um, would that dry up uh, some of the further river down south? Would it make it harder for water to flow properly? Those stakeholders down south are concerned with one portion of the year, the low flow season on the Pearl. This time of year, January, February, March, it wouldn't make much of a difference. But when it gets hot and the river is at low flow, folks downstream and industries downstream have concerns about the quantity of water that comes down to them. Andrew Whitehurst is with Healthy Gulf. Coming up after Bite Size Tech, a new report assesses the state of Mississippi's public universities. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This is MPB Think Radio. Mississippi is our mission. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. Welcome to this week's Bite Size Tech. I'm Jay White. How often in the news have you heard the term algorithm used with regard to the ever-changing operations on websites like YouTube, Facebook, or Twitter? Oftentimes, just the slightest tweak of the algorithm used by social media sites with millions of users can have an impact of millions of dollars in revenue. But what exactly is an algorithm? Everyday tech experts Wiltz Cotrer and Jeremy Thompson have the answer. I have to proceed this by saying I'm visually impaired, so I can't look things up. I don't have internet. What in the world is an algorithm? I had high school algebra. I had a friend to look it up, and the best thing I could compare it to was like it might have been a probability towards solving a problem, but what is it? Math formula. Yeah, what they're going to do is they're going to use statistics and probabilities based on what you like, who your friends are, what your friends like, how often you comment and like certain things to figure out who else you may have things in common with, what other businesses you may have things in common with. Hey, you liked this movie, so you may also like this movie. Okay. So a lot of algorithms, are they're going in there and especially trying to predict things that you like going forward based on things that you've done in the past. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, it sounds like a probability of putting you on a stream of things like a stream of preferences it's kind of like i think that's a good way to put in it old days, yeah. they used to check what kind of things you checked out at the library and figured stuff out that way very much so it's kind of like if you if you liked this author here are some other authors that may be in that same genre or write in that same style that you may also be interested in a good way to discover things that you may not have otherwise discovered thank you 
you because I, I mean national media. They ju- well, I listen to public radio a lot, and, and I do. Oh, I am able to watch the news on TV, but they just don't define it, and you have, and I appreciate it. Well, yes, ma'am, we appreciate you. Bell, thanks for the call from Yazoo City this morning. And yeah, uh, I mean, Jeremy, we hear about algorithm and how Facebook changes their algorithms. I hear about how like, YouTube changes their uh, revenue algorithms for their users all the time. That's been a big, big deal for a lot of content producers. It was it was originally called Face Mash, and it was just this thing they were doing on campus to rate uh, girls, um, like, hot or not type thing. And the original algorithm was uh, created to... Uh, to show the expectation that girl A was going to be the match versus girl B. That was that was where the whole thing came from, but it was just a small math formula that was determined by Eduardo Saverin to to see how they could rate the girls. That's all it was originally. <laughs> yeah. And the monster was born. For more technology conversation or to have your personal tech problems addressed, listen to MPB's Everyday Tech. The show is on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and the MPB Public Media app, free in the iTunes and Google Play stores. And, of course, listen weekdays at 10 right here on MPB Think Radio. This is MPB Think Radio. Mississippi is our mission. Have you been in this situation? You're listening to a great story on Think Radio in your vehicle, but now it's time to go inside. You want to keep listening, but you're ready to move on. What can you do? Pull up the MPB Public Media app on your phone while you're in the car. You can continue listening to that great MPB local show and not miss a moment. Search for the MPB Public Media app in your app store. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. A recent study conducted by the American Council of Trustees and Alumni, or ACTA, analyzes the state of higher education in Mississippi. Southern Exposure, a look at Mississippi's public colleges and universities, examines the Magnolia State's public university system using four essential metrics, academic strength, intellectual diversity, cost and effectiveness, and governance. Among its findings, the report indicates since 2007, faculty salaries have stagnated while administrative salaries have skyrocketed. Michael Polyakov is the president of ACTA. He shares more details of the study's findings with us. Uh, well, I'll start with some, some very good news. Okay. Uh, there has not been, in comparison to uh, what sadly happens at places all over the country, there's not been uh, one of those very regrettable shout-downs or disruptions or disinvitations of an invited speaker. So in that regard, these universities all have something to be quite proud of. Uh, Nothing ever to be complacent about because uh, these sorts of things that have so disgraced other campuses can't happen. Uh, But in general, they're they're really building from a position of a a very good record. And uh, there's some other real indicators of strength. Student-faculty ratios are favorable, and that means that the universities are investing in the most important part of a university's operation, which is teaching and learning. 
uh, and uh, typically uh, tuition and fees are below the national average. They represent a lower percentage of median household income, uh, especially in compared to say compared to neighboring Louisiana and nearby Kentucky. But having said that, it is never grounds for complacency because we do see that the growth in tuition has been rather rapid, uh, and it's really something that every university leader needs to keep a careful eye on. And uh, another good sign of strength is that when we look at the general education uh, requirements, the core curriculum, we find that uh, generally Mississippi schools do fairly well. Uh, we give them grades, and we don't do great inflation, but seven of the eight universities have earned a B rating. But compared to the rest of the country, that's actually a commendable place to start from. But, um, let's let's take a look at some of the more troubling uh, findings. One of them is that faculty salaries have pretty much stayed the same while administrative salaries has have gone up rapidly. How do you account for that? This really is a question of um, university culture and management. And here the leadership must take a very careful look at what it is prioritizing. For faculty salaries to be below peer averages, while senior administrative salaries uh, have in many cases been several times that, that situation is corrosive to university morale. The, the most important asset that any university has is its faculty, and that's where the university needs to make significant investment. What is the graduation rate of these eight universities compared to the rest of the country? Uh, that graduation rate uh, is another area where the universities need to be taking a, a very careful look. Our national averages are not good, hovering a little under um, 60%, and um, 59.7 for the um, students at public universities in a six-year graduation rate. But having said that, um, we're seeing only um, one university, that is Ole Miss, that is actually above that national average. Um, with the others below, in some cases, significantly below. And that means that these schools really do have to do some very serious work uh, on making sure that they have the kind of support system and the pedagogical advances and the advisement services that ensure, or at least if not ensure, give a much greater chance of student success. Your organization makes... 15 policy recommendations. Are there any of those that stand out as the best way to make the biggest impact? Yes. First of all, every one of the Mississippi universities needs to build on Mississippi's good record, uh, its unblemished record of uh, hosting speakers of diverse viewpoint and adopt the Chicago principles of freedom of expression or a similar statement. Uh, second, in this time of uh, lamentable civic ignorance and a very high level of civic discord, there is uh, no more important thing for a university to do in the preparation of future citizens 
than to ensure that every student take a foundational course in American history and government. To do anything less than that is to disempower graduates, to let them go not ready for is, the kind of informed and engaged citizenship. Is that not that, a requirement, history? That That is not a requirement. American history is not a requirement at any of the eight public universities. Dr. Polyakov, where can people view this study or this report? Uh, very easy. Go to uh, www.goacta.org, www.goacta.org, and uh, it, it's reachable right through our, our website uh, under the Publications tab, or right now, since it's new, right uh, on the banner at the very top of the screen. The Mississippi Center for Public Policy released the ACTA study on higher education, and we've been speaking with Dr. Michael Polyakov, who's the president of ACTA, which is American Council of Trustees and Alumni. Thank you very much for being with us. Uh, Thank you. It's been a pleasure to talk with you and a, a real honor to do anything that my organization can do to help these universities move from strength to strength. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.